to the HMP Governance Lab podcast. I'm Holly Jarman and I'm here today with my colleague Scott Greer to talk about some of the institutions that underpin the political system in the United States. And in particular, we want to talk to you a bit about the Federalist Papers. So I know what the question on your mind is going to be. Uh, This is a podcast and a public health class in 2021. Um, why are you making me read things from way back? This is not AP history. So, Scott, what's the reason why we always try to have a discussion around the Federalist Papers? Because the United States is relatively distinct in that we don't just have what amount to the instruction manual for the Constitution, as written by a bunch of the proponents of the original Constitution. It actually also makes big theoretical points that, unlike many of the other things in that document, are valid and useful for understanding American government more than two centuries later. So, I mean, my sense is that these the the people who wrote the Federalist Papers were trying to solve a particular governance problem, a set of political problems. And so in order to understand the Federalist Papers, you've got to have a look at the historical context for the problem that they were trying to solve. So what was that context, Scott? The context was that we had established our independence from the British Empire, which was one of the most powerful empires in the world at the time, mainly because the British were distracted by a war with France. Yes. They were going to come for a rematch, and the United States under the Articles of Confederation was in no shape to win. So if you go back, the Articles of Confederation was extraordinarily decentralized. Presidents were elected for one-year terms. States could levy customs charges on each other. So one of the great phrases was that New Jersey was tapped like a barrel at both ends because both the ports of New York and Philadelphia were making tons of money off of levying charges on goods that were going to New Jersey. So living in New Jersey was more expensive and the beneficiaries were New York and Philadelphia. Can you imagine America running on that basis? So the founders of the Constitution writers basically staged a coup. They all met and announced that they were going to reconfigure the government without particularly much support from the existing politicians under the Articles of Confederation. That's what they were doing in Philadelphia. Now, they wanted to have a stronger government. The intellectual problem that they had to solve is that there wasn't any understanding at the time of the possibility of a big, strong government in a big country. It was taken as a rule that republics had to live in small things, that republics were kind of an Italian city-state, and you couldn't have a big republic. Republics were necessarily tyrannies, monarchies, something like that. Yeah, right. When I hear the word republic, I, e- I even now think back to Machiavelli uh, and way, way back into my undergraduate political science degree for these kind of city-states. And so I, I think that still forms our understanding now. And, and the interesting thing about the Federalist Papers is it was such a different conception because it was based on the idea that you could argue for the possibility of democracy in a big country. And furthermore, it didn't depend on people being any good. And that's a lot of the real breakthrough that stuck with us today, is this is one of the first political theories that didn't depend much on the virtue of the citizens. So in in my capacity as asking the naive questions in this conversation, I don't actually think this, That's why there's all that stuff about the right to bear arms, right? You know, surely this is about the ability for people to form a militia and uh, during a time of uh, of crisis and military disruption. Now, that was about being able to um, suppress slave revolts. The Southerners were very concerned about the ability to whip up a 
patrol or a militia to put down any kind of a slave rising. There had been a bunch of them during the revolution because the British were going around freeing slaves. Uh, this is a thing that naturally greatly offended Southern slave owners. So this goes back to some of the things we've been touching on in class when we're dealing with contemporary issues. We have been talking about the nature of federalism and what that means for our health and the ways in which modern federalism um, can create disparate results and can allow states the freedom to to um, oppress people basically or uh, create programs that frustrate people's ability to to access um, needed services and support. Since we're on Second Amendment, which these days referring to Second Amendment people is pretty explicitly referring to insurrectionist militias, I'll also point out that the reason it says well-regulated militia is that while they wanted to make it clear that Southerners would be able to run slave patrols, they also wanted to make sure that you wouldn't get all sorts of little revolutions against taxes and so forth that were happening in the North. So well-regulated didn't mean a town can announce that it's not going to pay taxes, which was happening frequently in places like Western Massachusetts. It meant a properly organized oppressive force such as we found in the slave states. Right. So uh, the f the authors of these documents wanted to make the case that a strong federal government wouldn't become tyrannical, for example, by freeing slaves. Um, from this discussion, we get two key texts that we're having you read in this class. And that's really important, what Holly just said. The idea that we can have a strong government which isn't a tyranny because they wanted to create a stronger government and the natural response is your stronger government will become tyrannical. So they had to argue that you can design a strong government that won't be a tyranny. And Federalist 10 is that argument. It's an argument that you can create a machinery of government that will preserve democracy. And it's based on the fundamental office politics principle of where you stand depends on where you sit. It depends on creating friction by giving people different incentives and the ability to check and balance each other. I thought that was a line from Hamilton. Am I getting confused? Yeah, quite possibly. Uh, I'm, I'm making a terrible joke. So um, Federalist 10 was crucial because this was about how to have a, a larger democracy. Um, and here the important principle is that um, if men were angels and... Again, I would rephrase this a bit. If men were angels, there would be no need for governments. In other words, if we all were law-abiding, um, ethical individuals, uh, we wouldn't need government to, to govern us. And um, Scott brought this up the other day, and I was arguing against this quite fervently. I think we might need governments to organize ourselves. But I think you were taking it more literally, Scott, right? The point is that they were worried about tyranny and they were worried about faction. And faction is what we would now call an interest group or a political party. It's a group of people who are united to a given political end. And in our terms, that can mean anything. It can mean the insurrectionist militia that stormed the Capitol, and it can also mean advocates of single-payer health care. They were worried that people would form into factions, which we know people do, and they don't even have to be about anything. It can just be about ambition or stealing money together. And then one faction would gain control of the government and become tyrannical and oppress the others by taking away their rights, by taking away their property, and so forth. So this is the really crucial move. Then the reason that that line about if men were angels, there would be no need for government actually matters. Because if men were not given to 
ambition and a desire to tyrannize and a desire to become factious, then you wouldn't need this apparatus, says Madison. But since they are, since we're going to accept human nature that way, what we're going to do is design a government that will make sure that the factions check and balance each other. That's what's really crucial, right? And having lots and lots of factions makes it easier to do that because you can build coalitions of everybody who doesn't want to be tyrannized by a given faction. And so when you hear faction, think it Democrats, Republicans, the Chamber of Commerce, the AFL-CIO, whomever. And having lots and lots of them in a big country actually makes it easier to preserve the democracy. So instead of saying that you need a small place to be a democracy because then citizens can be virtuous and engaged, you say, no, we need a big place so that there can be lots of different factions in order to balance each other. And then you design a government which will ensure that the factions are able to do that. So essentially, this was the birth of the idea that we could have a United States of America. So bringing factions together to create one government in that sense, it's about reconfiguring the relationships with between the states in a fundamental way. And, you know, that's quite different than um, the idea that we are a plural, looser collective of states, um, which is quite exciting from a democratic organization point of view, even though we're still keeping in mind the problematic historic context of much of this. Well, it gives us the structure of both the federal government internally and the federation, meaning the relationship between the federal government and the states. Because if you go back to the original construction, we have the House of Representatives, which was supposed to be the real engine of the democracy, with 30,000 people per House member at the time. If we were to apply that rule now, we'd have just under 10,000 members of the House of Representatives, which we need a bigger House of Representatives, by the way. They were supposed to be really responsive to the people. Senators were supposed to represent the states. So there was two of them chosen by state legislators, and they were elected on, they are elected on staggered six-year terms. So you never turn over the complete Senate, which is why we have all these fights about filibusters and organizing resolutions and stuff. The Senate was supposed to slow things down. So it does two things. It represents state governments back at the time. It doesn't anymore. And it's... Ve- immune to any particular democratic surge like might sweep the house. So it's a deliberately anti-democratic institution, and it's been really good at that over the years. Then the presidency, indirectly elected by the national votes. And if that sounds contradictory, then think back to 2020. But the president is supposed to be the leader chosen by all the people, not the people of a district or a state. And the Electoral College was in large part a thing that a bunch of drunk, tired people did in order to get out of Philadelphia before it got any hotter. That's not a joke. Read an account of the proceedings. But it was also a way to make sure that people wouldn't elect a demagogue. As you know, it's worked out great. So all of these, because where you sit determines where you stand, were designed to create friction, insulating the government from democratic surges while still making it accountable. That's a really tricky balance to come up with and not necessarily one where we would approve of it now. Alexander Hamilton basically wanted George Washington to be president for life. One of the reasons that they actually came up with such a stupid mechanism as the Electoral College was precisely that they all thought that George Washington would be in office forever. Is that your professional opinion of the Electoral College? 
Uh, yeah. I think it's pretty accurate. It's asinine. It's asinine. It's dangerous. It lights a bomb underneath American democracy, and it explains how the Republicans have only won one presidential majority in the 21st century, nearly won in 2021, sorry, 2020, lost the 2016 election popular vote, lost the 2000 popular vote, and still got the presidency out of it. Yeah, I think people who were surprised by the 2020 election I think we maybe need a his, better historical understanding of how elections work in the U.S. because, you know, political scientists could see this come in a mile away. Um, For the record, so, this is, we have traditionally had consonants between electoral college and popular vote results. This thing that is now common in the 21st century, which is Republican presidents elected on a minority of votes, is a new development in American history. So, going back to the idea that we're... Um, balancing factions and that we can create a United States of America. Um, keeping in mind the historical problematic context that we the people is not all the people. Um, sorry, I keep going on about that because it wouldn't have been me. Um, the, the tendency might be to read these and say, great, America can be totally functional. What a great idea this country is. What a good idea for a political system. Um, what are the things that um, happen to, to disrupt this idea? Well, the big thing is political parties, also known as factions. And the founding fathers, by the election of 1800, had formed political parties. So go back to the initial logic, right? States counterbalance the federal government. The judiciary counterbalances the elected branches. The president counterbalances the House, counterbalances the Senate, counterbalances the presidency. This was all premised on the idea that the main things in your head, if you are, for example, a senator, is that you have a long time before your next election. You're in this body that's relatively small, and you can all be friends. There were 26 senators in the original Senate, of course. And you're responsible to state governments, which gives you a different perspective to House members. The minute you become a Democrat or a Whig or a Republican or a Federalist, you've created a coordinating mechanism that bestrides this. So you and the Senate are part of a larger group of people with shared ambitions and substantive goals called Democrat Republicans. That was Jefferson's party, for example. And you can coordinate across all the branches of government, eliminate that friction, and instead selectively mobilize these checks and balances in order to blockade the others and extract conditions, which is what we're seeing now. Two huge political parties which have very asymmetric in terms of what they want and who they represent, but both capable of mobilizing American institutions to blockade the other and also to take executive action, because when you gum up the legislature, then you automatically empower the executive, which is what we've seen under every presidential administration for decades. Yeah, the idea that there are multiple factions and that can be balanced against each other, I think is premised on the assumption that there are more than two factions. So when you get uh, large and quite significant political parties combined with this sort of hyper-partisanship in American politics that we're experiencing at the moment where there's not a lot of center ground and a lot of people are not in the middle of the political spectrum, if you will, um, the, the assumptions around the original system, the balancing of different factions uh, work kind of perversely and you've got the two sides sort of bargaining to to use the institutions against each other 
And um, the other thing that that's going to create over the longer term, if this continues to be the situation, is a switchback between different uh, administrations uh, as they take control. Um, and then you're not going to get a lot of progress in one direction or the other. I think you can already see that in um, the Trump's use of executive orders and then Biden's use of executive orders to rescind or undo a lot of what Trump did. You also saw an absurd example for a week early in 2021 when Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader, essentially filibustered the outcome of the election because you have to constitute the Senate every year in an organizing resolution for after each election. And because the Senate never really goes away, because two thirds of them remain in office, this meant that McConnell remained majority leader even after he'd lost his majority in the new Senate because they were operating under the old Senate rules, which meant that he could decide not to, for example, give the Georgia senators their new committee roles. And he was doing it to try and extract a promise from Chuck Schumer, the Democratic majority leader in waiting, that the new Senate would not have that the new Senate would not have anything that undermined the filibuster because the plan is to use the filibuster to prevent Joe Biden achieving anything. Mm -hmm. And the filibuster is a difficult thing. And we will get into that when we talk about Congress. I kind of want to finish off this discussion by talking about the implications of this historic context for contemporary health politics and contemporary health policy, which hopefully will get some of that. Well, what it means, I'm actually going to pick on the filibuster because that's a classic one. Okay. The Senate has a structural massive problem. It's one of the worst democratic bodies in the Western world, in large part because of the disproportion in the populations between the states. California moves to Wyoming, they become 600 plus times more important. You can elect a majority of the Senate on getting down to a low double digit percentage of the entire American population. And as we know, the underpopulated states are basically Republican ones. So more than half of the current Republican caucus represents a total population smaller than that represented by the two senators from California. This can still work and indeed incentivize Democrats to pay attention to the interests of states where a majority of the population are rural whites without the filibuster. But there's no way Democrats can pass anything with a 60 vote threshold. The 60-vote threshold is not immutable. It is not in the Constitution. The founders knew perfectly well how to call for a two-thirds majority, and they inserted it in several places, such as uh, conviction in an impeachment trial or to ratify a treaty, which is why the U.S. doesn't ratify any treaties. It developed because of a quirk in the Senate rules, and it has only been exploited on this industrial scale effectively since the 2010 elections when it was decided by the Republican leadership that they were going to make sure Obama could not legislate anything. And it's not immutable. It's within your lifetimes that it's come this way, and it's stretching the entire federal political system to the breaking point. Right. I think, I think it's very important to emphasize that we think of the political system as an immutable thing. All political systems or constitutions are created in historic context. We have to try to cast a critical eye over that context as well as those institutions and realize that... Um, if there is consensus, things can be changed and can be mutable. Uh, Congress, every time Congress is reformulated, uh, there's an opportunity to change the, its rules of operation. Uh, and the same for some of the other components of our, our system. I think it's just important to understand how this affects our um, approach to health policy uh, today and how we understand what's possible within the system. Sometimes having a good imagination about 
what is possible um, can help to break some of these gridlocks that are created by thinking about our institutions in certain specific ways. And I'll just throw one in because I know we need to stop. Electoral rules are what create the two-party duopoly. You change the electoral rules and there's pressure for that to happen. You would get a very different party system, including there would be a far-right party, a moderate Republican party, and probably a strong left-wing kind of Sanders AOC party. Yeah, I think that would be a very interesting development. You see that in other countries that have multi-party systems. I think that the system creates the politics is very often true. All right, we're going to leave it there for today. But in the next session, we'll be talking a bit more about the contemporary performance of these institutions. So I think it's great that we went back and took a look at some of these Federalist papers to begin with. We will see you next time. This has been an HMP Governance Lab podcast. If you're interested in learning more about our research, come and find us at www.governancelab.org or follow us on Twitter at HMPGovLab. GovLab.